your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. That's where we'll be at today. Uh, hopefully the last week on this text of Scripture. Hopefully. How many weeks can he go? That's the, that's the question. Uh, no, and uh, I think this is a very important text for us. It's very central to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, very central to the New Testament. Uh, that's why I've spent so many weeks on it. It appears in all four Gospels. It's very important. So, uh, Matthew 3, uh, starting in verse 13, and I'll go ahead and read down to verse 17, and then we'll jump in. Let's do that. This is God's Word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just reminded again that this text is just so important to the New Testament. Lord, because in it we see who you are. So Lord, help us not to approach it with as, as though you were some sort of doctrine that we can put on the shelf. But Lord, as you reveal yourself, I pray that we would not try to explain you but we would more try to just believe what is here. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, this morning, your anointing. And then, Lord, as we look at your anointing, I pray that we would experience and see our own anointing. Help us, we ask. Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in our hearts this morning. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last two Sundays, if you recall, uh, we've slowed down uh, to consider the role of the Trinity. Who is the, who is the Trinity? Who is this triune God which we worship? And this monumental moment, like I've said in the gospel, is is a moment that Christ that occurred at Christ's baptism. And this baptism scene is, like I said, it's it's clearly taught in all four gospels, meaning that this is very very important for us. And last week, two weeks ago, if you recall, we talked about the revelation from the Father. If you're taking notes there, it should be in front of you. It's the fatherhood of God. And we saw that the Father's pleasure and the relationship that he has with his Son when he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Namely, it's the special relationship from the Father to the Son that has always existed, the unique and special relationship. But then last week, we looked at uh, the redemption through the Son, or the Son's obedience. And we saw Jesus say, let it be so now, this is talking to John the Baptist, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We saw how Jesus came and he was baptized in order to be identified with, the, with his people as the new covenant representative who stands in the place of Adam. And then this week, we're going to consider the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit oftentimes, and I've heard people say this before, and it's, I think it's true, generally speaking, that especially in Baptist churches, the Spirit is not emphasized. 
I want to full, I want to push against that very much so today. And I want you to see that apart from the Holy Spirit here, we wouldn't know life, okay? We, we would not, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we would not be Christians. So we're going to look today at the regeneration by the Spirit. That's what I want us to consider today. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit's empowering. If you're taking notes, there at the top of your page. The real point of today's message is this, is that Jesus' baptism reveals the Holy Spirit's empowering. And because Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, so are all believers anointed and empowered and by the Holy, and by the Holy Spirit upon conversion. Not and by, but by the Holy Spirit upon conversion. So I want to paint a picture for you prior to, doing, prior to jumping into today. Uh, who, who all's here seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Anyone see that? Oh, wow. Okay, the majority. That, that's good. So, do you know the, the, the orcs, what's called the orcs in, in the Lord of the Rings? These, if you haven't seen it, they're these creatures that are truly that. They're just creatures, okay? They, they're the mang... I almost was going to include a picture. They're mangly-looking creatures. Very, very nasty-looking creatures. Creatures that, when I see them, at least, they send a, a chill down my spine a little bit. And the planet, I want you to picture that kind of a creature and put that creature on a very, very, very cold planet, okay? Very, very cold. And picture that creature uh, living on a planet that, not, that isn't just cold, but it's also dark. It likes to dwell in the darkness. And, and not only is the planet dark, but it's cold, it's ice cold. The, plant, the creatures, they live there. Now, they live a normal life as it works, you know, as orcs do. The orcs go to the grocery store. Orcs play sports. They're out there playing basketball, doing their orc-like things. But now picture one day, when this dark, dark, cold planet, a different orc coming. And this orc, he comes, and rather than being like cold and dark, he's filled with light and heat. What do you think the other orcs do to him? Do you think they're like, oh, we really like that guy. We love dwelling in the darkness. We love dwelling where it's cold. Do you think they're going to be like, man, I really like that orc that's light and that's heat. He, he burns me when I come near him. No, they hate him. The orc that had light sh- shine forth unlike all the others. The other orcs hated him. And if you'd see where I'm going with this, I'm presenting a picture that I think sometimes we, we sometimes look at like humanity around us and we think, we're not like, I'm not like an orc. Like, how, how am I like an orc? And I would, be like, I would actually contend that the Bible's presentation of humanity is much uglier than what we want to realize. It's much, much uglier. Which is why when we see Jesus coming and, and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove, and the Father saying of Him, this is my beloved Son, the orc in us wants to be like, Ugh. Ugh. maybe not in us, but definitely in those who have not been regenerated, which is what we're going to talk about today. So I want us to consider, keep that story in the background, keep it humming in the background. I want want us to consider two elements, two anointings today. We're going to consider first Jesus' anointing, and then I want to look at our own anointing, okay? So Jesus' anointing, and then our anointing. And Jesus' anointing is what we'll consider first. It's Jesus' anointing, the Christ of God. Now, when Jesus is referred to in the New Testament, he's often referred to Jesus Christ. I remember talking to a person one time who thought that Christ was his last name. 
Christ was, <laughs> he did not live on Christ's lane. <laughs> when he's called Jesus Christ, they're saying this is his title. This is who he is. <laughs> Sorry. I remember the conversation very vividly with the person who said that, and I, I laughed. I laughed. I probably shouldn't have laughed, but they, they said that, and I just laughed. He's, Christ is not his last name. It's a title. But Christ is, is from the Old Testament word, which is anointed one, okay? So the Old Testament word is anointed one, and it, we get, bring it to the New Testament, and we start calling it Christ or Christos. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism, I think this is very helpful. They ask a question. I think it's very helpful and instructive for us to consider. They ask, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? This is very important. And they say, the answer, and I'll just consider the first sentence, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. He's the Christ. We, we have the Christ. What the Jews are hoping for, we have, and they don't realize it. So the question I want us to consider first is who is the Holy Spirit? Who is he? Who is the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism? And we're going to look, because this question, unpacking this question is very important for it. So if you look down at your Bible, I want us to consider verse 15 and 16 again. So, and Jesus answered John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he says, I need to be baptized. Or John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Verse 14. In verse 15, he says, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for, to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Isn't that interesting? We just heard John say, there's coming one who's going to baptize people with fire. And then all of a sudden we see Jesus come, he can be lifted up from the water, and what descends on him? A dove. <laughs> this, this image of peace and peace and love and affection. So what does it mean that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove? Okay, well, I'll put it, I'll tell you first, I don't think the Holy Spirit really is a dove, okay? Let's be very clear. There's many traditions that do very, very weird things with this conception, uh, a dove is known, uh, Jonathan Edwards observed, that it's the remarkable love, wonderful love, uh, that it has to its mate. So if you think about a dove, if you know a dove, a dove's relationship with other doves, unlike other creatures, they have actually like monogamous relationships, meaning that doves actually come together and they actually stay with, their couple, with a couple in that way, unlike other creatures. And I think it shows, as Edwards is pointing out, it's a remarkable love that's what, that's what it was. The, the dove is simply known as a figure of love, and he's baptized with water, but there's a greater baptism happening, which represents the fellowship that has always been. So the Holy Spirit, if you're taking notes there, I want you to notice first that the Holy Spirit's descent reveals his origin. The Holy Spirit's descent, one, one Jesus, reveals his origin. And some of these will be pretty basic on the front end, but... It, They'll matter for the the second half of this. Now, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but the Holy Spirit in this instance represents the infinite love that the Father has always had for the Son. 
Now remember what this father has said. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But now the dove, we're starting to see, this represents the love that he's always had for the son. Maybe, parents, maybe you've had a, a situation similar to this. Um, have you ever had an instance where husbands or wives, you'll, you'll kiss your spouse, and, and your child, when they're little, they'll come up to you and they'll say, oh, you, you kiss mommy, or <laughs> Simeon to me, let's just pretend. He comes up to me and says, oh, you kiss mommy too. I kiss mommy. And I would say to him, son, I've always kissed mommy. <laughs> like, there's never been a time that you existed that I didn't kiss mommy, <laughs> in that sense. And what we're seeing here is something very similar to that. The Father is displaying, he's speaking, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit is falling upon the Son. And we're looking at it and we're like, oh, this must be the first time this has happened. And we're like that little kid that comes to their parents and is like, oh, is that the first time you've kissed mommy? It's like, um, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's, that, no. <laughs> the Holy Spirit has always been with Jesus. We shouldn't think that Jesus was without the Holy Spirit upon his baptism. Because with, we are told all throughout the Gospels, and we're told even in the Gospel of Luke. Just here's one example. When Elizabeth heard the greet, this is when Jesus was still in Mary's womb. This is what happened. Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, and the baby within her womb leapt. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so Jesus, being a baby, not even out of the womb, not even out of utero, his mother speaks, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now notice, this is very interesting. Go back to verse 41. It says that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, did the Holy Spirit remain with her? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> but notice, what I want you to notice, is that the Holy Spirit at this point, and the Holy Spirit even characterized in the Old Testament, would, would be seen as filling, but not remaining. All throughout the Old Testament, we're going to consider this that the Holy Spirit did not dwell with the people of God like he did with Jesus. When we see the, the Spirit falling on the Lord Jesus here, verse 16, when he says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest, verse 16, coming to rest on him. Notice that. That's very important. There has never been a time that Jesus was without the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because Jesus has always been the object of affection of the Father's love. That's why. The Holy Spirit, so I want you to see the second, the second piece. The Holy Spirit's rest reveals his empowering. The Holy Spirit's rest reveals his empowering. So what does the fact that the Holy Spirit rested on Christ mean? And I want to consider just several examples of anointing in the Old Testament and show you why it matters. So the high priest... Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, I'll give you just one example. Exodus 29, 7 says this. Uh, the high priest, remember, if you remember, was the man who was anointed for a purpose of cleansing people of sin. Exodus 29, 7 says this. You shall, anoint, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Now, anointing happened in the priesthood, and it was called out to designate this person for a particular kind of service. Okay? But the thing about the priests is the Spirit didn't dwell in them. See, this is the big difference. The Spirit would come and dwell on them temporarily, but they would, He would not dwell permanently. Or take the messengers. I would call them the messengers of anointing. So you, you think about the book of Judges. 
We're told all throughout the book of Judges and all throughout the Old Testament, when a man would come and he'd be God's representative, that, take uh, Samson, for instance. It says this in Judges 13.25 of him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Okay, so the Spirit stirs people. The Spirit even empowers. We're even told at certain points that the Holy Spirit empowers Samson. But notice what happens in Judges 16.20 when Samson rebels. Judges 16.20. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Do you see? That, that's, that's the nature of the Holy Spirit even in the Old Testament. Or take King David's anointing. If you remember, David was first declared king to Sam, by Samuel when Samuel anointed him. But then David sins, like we know, and with Bathsheba and Psalm 51, 11, listen to what his prayer is. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear him? Even in the way he's asking that. Do not, do not remove your presence from me in that way. And there's pointing forward to a day when there's going to come one who the Spirit just rests upon him. And this is what we're seeing. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my sort, this is what the Lord says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So I want you to see that third point there, that the Holy Spirit's presence reveals Jesus is God's anointed one. Let me say that one more time. And some of this might be very, very simple for you. And if it is, great. But it, it's important for what I'm going to do in the second part of this. The Holy Spirit's presence reveals that Jesus is God's anointed one. What Bovnik says, I think, is very helpful. He says, Christ is uniquely the anointed, for he's been appointed by God himself and has been anointed not merely with the token of oil, but without limit by the Holy Spirit himself. Every other one who's come before him, he would have the Spirit temporarily, he would be anointed, the Spirit would come, the Spirit would go. But here comes Jesus, and he has the Spirit without measure. This is, this is and all the orcs in the land shudder. All the orcs in the land begin to realize, this one's not like the others. Whereas another guy says, the outpouring of the prophetic Spirit is plentiful upon Israel, was commonly regarded as one of the chief blessings and hallmarks of the new age. Listen to even the words of Jesus himself. He says in uh, Luke chapter 4, you, you don't have to turn there, it should be on the screen. I, lo I love this scene, because I don't know what the people there thought of this. But listen to what, what he says. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And this is Jesus. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and, flat, and found the place where it was written. This is what he, no, he's reading from Isaiah. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives recovering and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. <laughs> so that's what he says. And then notice what he says in verse 20. This is very important. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Listen to what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If we ever have somebody that stands up and does this, <laughs> we should throw them out, <laughs> okay? 
But Jesus says, today, this scripture, where the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, has been fulfilled. It's here. You're looking at it. And this is very important for Jesus' ministry. There's not an instance in Jesus' ministry that happens without the Spirit's work, activity. But I want to ask a very important question before we get into the second part. Was the Holy Spirit simply a force that came upon Jesus? Or was the Holy Spirit a person in that sense? If we have a conception of the Holy Spirit that he is simply a force, like somehow we're like Jedi masters that were like, Luke, use the force. We have a wrong conception of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit were merely a force to be wielded, then there would be Christians who are supposed Jedi masters. And then we could elevate one another and say, well, do you have the Spirit as much as I do? And does this one have the Spirit? And there's a little more Spirit over there, or that one has the Spirit over here a little more. There would be different levels of wielding the Spirit. But this is not the biblical portrait. If the Holy Spirit were merely a force, then He would depart from us every time we sin. And there are some traditions that believe that, that every time we sin, the Holy Spirit has somehow departed from us. That's a very scary world to live in. I, wanna, I just want to acknowledge, if we live in a world that the Holy Spirit is simply a force that comes upon us, we should shudder. Because that means every time I sin, He just departs from me. That's scary. That's a very scary place to be in. And I want to contend that's not true. Every spiritual gift listed in 1 Corinthians 11, in 1 Corinthians 13, represents not just a hodgepodge of gifts thrown at us, but one singular gift, and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to move to the second anointing, okay? It's our anointing. So this is why it matters for us. So this first part was building, it's crescendoing to a point that I want us to consider our own anointing. And it's baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I loved, again, the next question of the Heidelberg Catechism, right after the one we just asked, says this, but why are you called a Christian? Why are you called a Christian? Listen to what he, they answer it. They say, because of faith, I'm a member of Christ And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. So it's our anointing. So we need to see, now I want to be clear here, this text of Jesus being baptized is not speaking of our anointing. But if we see his anointing, Christ's anointing, then there's an implication then for our own anointing. And since Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit upon his baptism, so too are believers anointed with the Holy Spirit upon conversion. And this is what happens in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, they're brought forth an event of monumental importance. God broke open the storehouses of heaven and poured out his Spirit upon people. All those dry, boned orcs that lived with darkened souls, darkened, cold existence, God poured out the heat of his spirit upon them. Just as the psalmist depicts the consecration of the priest presiding upon God's dwelling place in Psalm 133, God has bestowed his anointing upon the Lord Jesus 
the high priest. Notice what Psalm 133 says. He said, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar. And the anointing for us, brothers and sisters, has started upon the head of Christ, and it has drizzled down onto us, his body. Praise be to God that he has sent his spirit in this, in this way. So what needs to happen in order for this anointing to take place? That's what I want us to consider today. So our anointed, our anointing, it's baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it's simply this, it comes in two parts. The Holy Spirit first must remove our old nature. The Holy Spirit removes our old nature. Or as Jesus tells Nicodemus at night, when Nicodemus asks him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is what's needed for all of us. This is what's needed for me. This is what's needed for you. This is what's needed for every person that is to be a Christian, to be named a Christian. And you may wonder, why, why am I even talking about this? What does this have to do with us? Well, when we share the gospel with people, we need to realize that we're not, shaving, we're not sharing the gospel in a hospital. We're sharing the gospel in a graveyard. And there's a big difference. If I'm sharing the gospel as though I'm in the hospital, I'm pleading with people, come on out of your rooms. Please, come, come receive Christ. And they'll come, right? We'll expect they'll maybe get up. God will maybe heal them. But what if we flip that and we go down to the, the, the cemetery and I started saying, come on, guys, get up. I would hope someone would be like, what is wrong with you? You, they need the doctrine of regeneration, of the Holy Spirit removing our old nature and imparting a new nature is the doctrine of regeneration. And it's not the doctrine of a cleanup job. It's the doctrine of a new life. It's the doctrine of the need for a new life. Now, I grew up, I grew up going to church camp. And every summer, every summer, we would, we would have, I think they would call it consecration night. Now, that, hear me. There's nothing wrong with this. I want to be very clear. There's nothing wrong with this, in a sense. But I, and I'm sure you've been a part of something like this, so I'm, I'll just say it. The, the speaker, whoever it was, would always say, okay, 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 now we're going to have a time that we can all commit ourselves to Jesus. Here's how we're going to do it. Everyone close your eyes. Eyes, eyes bowed, heads, heads, heads closed. And then he'd say, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you want to receive Jesus. And then he'd go, yep, yep, I see you, ma'am, in the back. Yeah, 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 I see you, guy in the front. Yep, 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 you over here. And he would slowly do that. And I would wonder, even sitting there as a child, what is this guy doing? What is this guy doing? And I think at the time I was dead in my sins. I don't think I understood what he was talking about. But I I experienced so many of these, I would call them manipulative tactics. And I think the speaker, if I told him, if I stood up as a child and said, what are you, what are you doing? We're all, if we're dead in our sins, why are you trying to plead with us to like arm bar us to come make a decision? No, that's not, how our, that's not how conversion happens. Conversion is an act of God. 
Conversion is something that is so supernatural, that so changes us at our very nature. I shouldn't need to say, hey, uh, you in the back, raise your hand. You raise your hand. You, you come raise your hand. That's not how evangelism should happen. So then the question is, well, okay, Daniel, what, what do we do then? What do we do? Well, we preach Jesus. We give Jesus' life and his death and his burial and his resurrection for sinners. Him taking our sinful life and giving us his righteousness. His substitutionary death for sinners. We give them the gospel because that's what God promises to bless. And when we do that, you know what happens? We don't even see it. But God changes hearts in ways that we could never imagine. We give them a gos- the gospel, and like a faithful farmer that sows seed, we throw it out, and we trust and believe that the seed will bring forth fruit. You know what our job then is? Fruit inspectors. We walk around and we say, where's the fruit? Here, let me give you some examples of how this plays out. How we evangelize our children. If we use... I know of a family... I'll just do this one. I know of a family that their, their mother, in all well-intentioned, you could probably all give, we could all give stories that are like this. There was an altar call, very similar to these things. And she thought, well, I just need to get my kids down to the altar and sign the paper, right? I, I wish I could go back and talk to that mother and say, this isn't going to change them. Only God can change them. So if we try to use evangelistic tactics on our children it will fail inevitably. What we need to do is preach the gospel to our children and then watch for fruit. That's it. It's actually very simple. It's actually as simple as being a farmer. We sow seed. We keep sowing seed like wild men. We just sow seed. Jesus has died for you. Trust in Christ. Believe on Jesus. And you know what we do? We watch for fruit. We watch for God to change them. We don't try to manipulate them. And the same way we evangelize our children is the same way we evangelize our community. We do, it's no different. Because God has to first take away the old nature, the old man, the old orc within me, to give me the new orc, the, the orc that actually shines forth some light. The Holy Spirit, which leads it to the second piece, which is the Holy Spirit imparts the new nature. And this is where I want us to begin to land the plane. Just, and I could give so many places we could talk in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple. Second Corinthians five sixteen through 17. He says, From now on, therefore, regard no one according to the flesh, that is, according to the old nature, even though we once regarded Christ according to the old nature or the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Why? Therefore, if anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old has died. Behold, the new has come. Does, does that, let me, let me just ask you, just very briefly, does that sound like an evangelistic tactic to you? Does that sound like something an evangelist can do? Guys, I love men like Billy Graham, but if you ask Billy Graham, hey, how many of the people that actually came forward were converted? He said, he said numbers less than 10%. You know why? This doctrine because Billy Graham believed this doctrine. He said, unless the old is passed away, behold, the new won't come. A 
Christianity, if it sounds merely like a moral cleanup job, is morally, is, is deficient. It is not enough. Or, or take 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. He says, now we have, not, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, imparting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he tells a story. I think it's really funny. He tells a story of one time he was, hear me, I'm not against having revivals. I want us to have revivals. But we need to do revivals according to how Scripture says we do revivals. And and Martin Lloyd-Jones, he talks about revivals, and he said there was a guy who came to a revival and he said, oh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, if I would have saw you the night before, I would have come forward. I would have, I would have received Christ. But he said, but now I'm not interested. <laughs> and Lloyd-Jones chuckled at him and he said, you're still dead in your sins. And he said, well, why, why would you say that? I, I said I wanted to come forward yesterday. And he said, then come forward now. And he's like, I don't want to. It's like, then the old hasn't passed away. The new hasn't come in that way. But the question is, well, how does the Spirit do this then? Well, the first tool that the Spirit uses to bring this about is what? It's Scripture. Listen to 2 Peter 1, 16 through 17, 16 through 21. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we have made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So this is the Father. This is Peter reflecting upon the, the, uh, the situation in Matthew five or 17 that we're going to look at later. And he, he, he says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, conformed, confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you hear that? What he says there? He says, go back, yeah, right there. The prophetic word has been confirmed where? When When God the Father says of God the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And based on that authority, he says, and we have the prophetic word more more fully conformed confirmed. And you would do well to pay attention. And he goes on to say, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see the tool, the instrument that the Spirit uses. And the the other question is, how does he do it? This is the last question we'll consider. How does he impart the new nature to us? The Catholic conception of grace is almost like you could fill grace with a, in a bucket. <laughs> okay, let me put it to you like this. So like they, they take, when, when Mary says in Luke 2, um, Mary full of grace, have you ever heard a Catholic talk about this? Their conception of grace is like you could, it's like a thing. You like pick up some grace, you put it in a bucket, and you just like throw grace upon people, okay? But the way that the Holy Spirit imparts the new nature, we believe, is by grace, through faith. It is the empowering of God. I would put it like this, and just to kind of conclude these, this three-part series with this simple illustration. It would be as if 
God the Father were like a sun in that sense, or like a, like a literal, a big ball of fire in the sky. The sun himself would be the light that shines forth, that illuminates all. The Holy Spirit then is the heat from the sun that burns away the darkness. William Tyndale, he said, where the Spirit is, there is always summer. There is, are always good fruits, that is to say, good works from the Holy Spirit shining in our hearts. If you think about the orcs, these orcs that come, that have these cold, stony hearts, that once hated the orc that had light shining forth from him, the orcs that have now had their hearts warmed to the gospel, do you think they say, hmm, look how great of orcs we are. Look how, look how strong of orcs we are. We're, we're better than all the other orcs. No. They say, look how great the one who's changed our heart is. Look how great the one who's poured into us the warmth that's, that's taken a cold and stony heart and has brought forth life. Where the Spirit of God is, there is someone who has loved God in the face of Jesus Christ. They have experienced the love of God poured into their hearts by faith. Whereas Paul says in Romans 5, what the Holy Spirit does, he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Salvation, friends, is like a beautiful mosaic that God the Father has planned, that God the Son has purchased the bucket of paint with his blood, And the Holy Spirit now applies to us. And brothers and sisters, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, is what God has prepared for those who love him. We could talk on this for years. talking of the Spirit's regeneration, regenerating work, the Spirit's removing of the old nature, the Spirit's imparting of the new nature. But these are things that only come from the Spirit. And as he says in verse 10 then, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Let me give you one closing application. This is why, in the economy of God, prayer is so important. You know why prayer is so important? Because me and you can do nothing in ourself. I want to say that one more time. In ourself, me and you are weak. As Luther said, we are blind beggars telling other beggars where there's bread. And literally, he says, he goes on to say that we in ourselves can do nothing. That's why prayer is so important in our lives, in the life of the church, because we're beseeching God, remove their old nature, impart to them your new nature, do that work in them, draw them to yourself. Lord, Lord, show yourself to them. All we do, like the farmer, is we scatter seed and we pray, we we scatter seed and we pray. So may we, may we do that work in the coming weeks. May we do that work here in Kaiser as people who know and believe and trust in the regenerating power of the Spirit. That's what needs to happen in the hearts of our children. 
That's what needs to happen in the hearts of our community. That's what needs to happen in hearts all around us. So let's believe it, because that's what the Bible says in that way. Um, I want us to pause. I want us to reflect on what we've heard. I actually want us to take a minute and, and maybe even consider um, an area that we don't believe this in. Maybe it's an area, maybe it's an area that you, maybe you're not, you're struggling to believe this in the lives of your children. Maybe it's an area that you're struggling to believe this in the lives of your coworkers. Wherever it may be, I want us just to take a minute and pause and reflect on ways that we have, we have not believed this truth of what we've seen in Scripture today. So take a minute and do that, and then I'll, I'll close this out.